Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and in this episode, you'll learn where to find great clams, hot dogs, and ice cream at some of Connecticut's most iconic roadside food shacks. But first, a visit to Stonington Borough, a small spit of land close to the Rhode Island border with big stories galore. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, with Mary Donahue, assistant publisher. Today we're bringing listeners along on a visit to Stonington Borough, part of the small town's big stories theme of the summer issue of Connecticut Explored. After our visit to Stonington, stay tuned for Shack Attack, Summer Eats in Connecticut. Stonington is the easternmost town on the Connecticut coast, and Stonington Borough is a peninsula of land only about a third of a mile long, jutting into Long Island Sound. It's a -a chock-a-block full of history, dating from the mid-18th century. It's got a storied maritime history of shipbuilding, sealing, whaling, and fishing. It developed industry, too, and a steamship railroad connection here between New York and Boston fostered a summer community. But you'll hear more about that later. First, Mary and I invite you to join us as we enter a modest door off Water Street and climb three flights of creaky wooden stairs to what must be one of the most unusual listings on the National Register of Historic Places. We are here to visit the James Merrill House, which Charlie Clark wrote about in our summer issue, and he's here with us today. He's invited Sibby Lynch to join us, who knew James Merrill and was head of the Village Improvement Association when James Merrill died and left the building to the Village Improvement Association. We have also a very special guest today, Noah Warren, the poet-in-residence, and I'm going to have Sibby tell us a little bit more about why she's so excited that Noah is with us today. Noah is the recipient of the Yale Younger Poet Award, and part of the prize is a month in the Merrill House. Is that it, Noah? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they also published his first book, right? Right, so Yale University Press put out the book in the spring, and... Now I'm here in June, trying to figure out a way forward as a poet. James Merrill was the son of the founder of investment and brokerage firm Merrill Lynch and an important American 20th century poet. He discovered Stonington on a visit to a friend in 1954 and was smitten. He and his partner, artist David Jackson, kept a kind of pied-à-terre on the top two floors of a four-story late Victorian commercial building with storefronts at the ground level. When James Merrill died, he left his house to the Village Improvement Association, and it was left very encumbered because there were other people living in it who had, were given the right to stay in it, and one person was given the right to receive the rents from the stores on the first two floors, but we were given the top two floors where Jimmy lived, and many of the objects in it were given away um, to his friends in the will, but so much was left, and it just has this wonderful look to it that we wanted to maintain. I grew up in Stonington, and I knew Jimmy, and I knew all the fantastic people that were his friends, and it was a wonderful time in the 50s and 60s in Stonington. And I was seeing it slip away, and just the immediate thought was instantly that this, just if there's any way to keep this as a place that is used by writers, we'll just do everything we can to do it. And so this little organization that mostly put up flags and did, you know, window boxes 
started this thing was a success really from the start. Mary spent 30 years as an architectural historian for the State Historic Preservation Office, and she has her own history with this place. First inkling I had about this project was, uh, I think, an email and telephone correspondence with Sibby when I was the surveying grants director at the State Historic Preservation Office four or five years ago. And she said, oh, it's this, you know, it's this important writer, and we've got this building. And I immediately knew the building because it's on a corner. It has this commanding shingle tower. It's, it's a landmark building in and of itself, architecturally, let alone the fact that it was James Merrill's home for 40 years. So we thought, well, let's, let's write a grant and see if we can get it listed on the National Register of Historic Places individually. So then people will be able to recognize that it's not just its importance as part of the streetscape, it's, imp it's importance as part of the life of this literary figure that is so prominent in American poetry. And I, I think that one of the interesting points to me, even early on with that, was historic preservationists, unless it's going to be a museum where things aren't touched, and the furniture is off limits. It was interesting and a little bit hard for me to wrap myself around the, the at the beginning the idea that it would be a living place where we'd have rotating authors and writers and literary people coming in and out of a furnished apartment, and that it was going to really almost feel like he just left and that somebody was here to visit him. For the first decade or so, the writers would stay in this apartment that we're in right now in Jimmy Merrill's apartment and then we freed up the apartment next door which had been David Jackson's apartment and now the writer stays in there and it just there's a little bit less wear and tear. I should add that's a it was a key issue for the committee five six seven years ago which was how to use this space and to maintain the integrity of it and the presence of all the objects as Jimmy left the residue the things he didn't give away but uh, to, to honor it uh, in a way that kept it alive, and also how to raise money for this facility. It, it really can't be a museum that has the, to which lots of people have access because there is no working elevator. And as you know, you had to walk up three staircases to get here, so it's limited access. Uh, but still, uh, there is an open house on Sunday, July 10th, from 3 to 5, to which we, well, the entire public is invited. Noah, I'd like to have you just talk a little bit about your experience here. So it's middle of June. You've been here. You're about halfway through. From the first, the impression is that you're living in someone else's mind. Um, the If a lot of the objects have been replaced or rotated on the walls still, um, that enormous mirror behind us with the frothy Victorian gilt, this salmon-colored room with the, the domed Baroque ceiling, have carry carry with them so much force of personality in themselves, and of course, um, the sanctum behind the revolving bookcase um, seems to have been cut off from the entire world since 1994. So it's it's karmic. It's also incredibly haunted. I can barely come in here at night. <laughs> um, it's been good for the work. It's not entirely my work that's coming out, but it's something new, and that's exciting in itself. As Charlie noted in his story for Connecticut Explored, Marilyn Jackson joined a summer community of artists and writers, and as Sibby tells us, There were painters living in this building, I think, when he first moved here, and writers, and I think he, he called the building the writer's block. 
So Noah, can you tell us a little bit about how this particular place, Stonington, figured in his work? So Merrill's, I think, what he'll, what he's known at, known for now, and how he'll go down in the kind of long history of American poetry in the twentieth century, was a renovation of a metrical, rhymed, often rhymed style, taking that is heroic verse, uh, iambic pentameter, which had such a stigma clinging to it after modernism, and bringing it into the vernacular idiom, making it chatty, witty, and more flexible than a lot of people had come to expect formal style to be. Um, And so he was a poet, and you see this in his work, who was almost indifferent on one level to subject matter. Um, The easy virtuosity, which you see um, throughout, throughout his opus, could begin with um, uh, a picture of an angel on his desk, uh, one famous poem, The Blue Willowware Cup, is another famous poem of Merrill's in which he addresses um, a little teacup from the Five and Dime store, um, which is also the instrument of the Ouija board. So we see over and over in the poems not these rhapsodical transports of language, but rather a picking up of something very near to hand. And one of his favorite subjects was the view out the window or the view from his desk. The context of this apartment um, features over and over in the poems. We're sitting right around a carpet, um, which would later become the um, inspiration for the wallpaper in this same salon. Um, The cupola, the cupolas you can see from the deck here, resurface uh, throughout the poems. The architecture of Stonington itself um, is described in over and over in a million ways. And so I thought um, I'd read just a quick snippet from Mirabelle, the Book of Numbers, the middle of his long poem, The Changing Light of Sandover, which picks up interior, interior decorating um, the most on one, you know, declasse of topics, but brings an epic invocation straight out of Virgil um, to nothing less than the wallpaper. This is the very beginning of Mirabelle. Oh, very well, then. Let us broach the matter of the new wallpaper in Stonington. Between our dining room and stairs leading to the future studio, from long before our time was this ill-lit shoebox of a parlor where we'd sit, faute de mieux, when not asleep or eating. It had been papered by the original people, blue-on-eggshell foliage touchingly mottled or torn in places, and would do throughout a first phase, till the fisherman's wife and one of us awoke, requiring that our arrangements undergo a partial turn of the screw toward grandeur. So began what must in retrospect be called the age, some fifteen years, of the wrong wallpaper. (laughs) And you can hear in that also the fisherman's wife, um, which picks up on Stonington itself, of course, and equally thrown in, um, the allusion to Henry James, the turn of the screw. It's the kind of easy inclusion which we didn't expect from from formal verse before Merrill, um, which is acutely sensitive to this to this physical environment as to um, a long literary past. What's really exciting here at the Merrill House is that they are on their way to being designated as a National Historic Landmark. This is a process that's a winnowing process 
very few properties that are listed on the National Register of Historic Places become National Historic Landmarks because you have to be nationally significant, and that has to be demonstrated to a board of scholars in Washington, D.C. Now, that nomination has been written by two scholars. It's been passed by the overseeing board for the National Historic Landmark Program, and it'll go to the Secretary of the Interior for signature, we hope soon. But it clearly demonstrates that this is a gem. There are only 60-something National Historic Landmarks in the entire state, and we can't wait for the Merrill House to join it. So you told us, Charlie, earlier that there is an opportunity for people to come visit the James Merrill House. You have an occasional open houses, one coming up on July 10th, 10th from 3 to 5 in the afternoon. Um, so uh, we're at 107 Water Street. And then you occasionally have, I see, also uh, poetry readings. I want to thank Charlie for writing the story for us. Uh, for anyone interested in uh, learning more and reading our story in the summer issue of Connecticut Explored, visit CT explored.org. Thank you, Sibby Lynch, for being with us today, and, and Noah for reading poetry and telling us more about James Merrill, the poet. We left Charlie, Sibby, and Noah and headed back down to the street, where Beth Moore promised to show us some of the highlights of Stonington Historical Society's walking tour, available Fridays and Sundays throughout the summer and fall. Thanks for having us, Beth. I'm happy to be here and, and show off the beauty of Stonington Borough. So in my publisher's letter in the summer issue, I extolled the virtues of a day trip down to Stonington. We've just been into the James Merrill House, but Beth is here to show us around to some other sites. We're walking in front of the birthplace of Nathaniel Brown Palmer. It's located at 94 Water Street. If you look at the house now, you'll see that it's it's got a lot of Palladian architectural detailing that was added in the 20th century, so it's hard to hard to see that it was really a colonial era house but this is where Nathaniel Brown Palmer credited with the discovery of Antarctica in 1820 at the ripe old age of 21 this was his birthplace so going just a little bit further south on Water Street we're going to stop in front of the Sea Breed House which is um, identified as having been built in 1760 and that provides a good architectural comparison with the Nathaniel Brown Palmer House at 94 Water Street. This is really much more what the Nathaniel Palmer House looked like in the 1700s. Um, very simple colonial structure. We're now standing in front of the arcade building which runs um, from 65 261 Water Street, and we call this America's first strip mall because it is a single-story building that has three storefronts, um, and it contains Greek Revival columns in the front of it. We uh, call it a strip mall because it was built very rapidly in 1837 after a fire had destroyed the previous buildings here, and during the 19th century, there was a baker, a sh fishmonger, and um, probably a candle maker as well. So literally the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Just about. <laughs> so we're standing now at Cannon Square, which is the um, southern square of the two-squared Stonington Borough. And it contains the two 18-pound cannons that were brought out of retirement from the Revolutionary War for the Battle of 1814, the famous Battle of Stonington, um, at which 
five British naval war vessels attempted to attack our helpless port and uh, we defended them with these two 18-pound cannons and also a six-pound cannon. Um, the British had up to 10 cannons aboard their boats, which were able to shoot 200-pound cannonballs, and the best we could do was 18-pound cannons. Um, we successfully repelled the British. They were not able to make landing, and we did not have a single single casualty as a result of the battle. And most of the damage to Stonington Burr was the result of fire. In addition to being absolutely bucolic and lovely and charming down here in the borough, it is also densely packed with history. And we are now standing on one of my favorite spots, the densest historical spot in my opinion, which is at the corner of Wall Street and Main Street. To my right at 25 Main Street is the Oliver Smith House built about 1760. It um, was owned by Colonel Oliver Smith, who was a Revolutionary War hero here in Stonington, and he is most notable now as being the last owner of Venture Smith, the slave grotier who bought his independence from Oliver Smith um, and then sued him a couple of times because he thought the price he had to pay was too high. Venture Smith, we know, eventually um, was able to buy his own freedom and that of his wife and children, and he bought a lot of land throughout Connecticut and had some farms here. The Amos Palmer House at 24 Main Street has a lot of history associated with it. The first owner, Amos Palmer, was a dignitary here in Stonington at the time of the Battle of Stonington, 1814. He helped negotiate a truce with the British. The first night of the battle, it is said that a cannonball landed in his house and went from the back side of the house and out the front window. Legend has it that the next morning he got up and went outside and when that cannonball had cooled off, he picked it up, he took it down to Grasshopper Fort where a small ragtag group of young men were defending us and he handed the cannonball to them saying, would you kindly send this back to the British with my best regards? It has caused me $100 worth of damage. The house is also notable because in 1836, James McNeil Whistler, as a child, lived here with his mother and his father, George Washington Whistler. George Washington Whistler was the chief engineer for the railroad and stayed here for a few years as he was bringing the railroad from Boston, laying tracks from Boston down to Stonington. No trip to Stonington Borough would be complete without a stop at the old Lighthouse Museum, the oldest lighthouse museum in the country, opened in 1925. A favorite with families. Children love going up to the tower and seeing the view. It's got a great collection, a lot on local economies that um, sustained Stonington over the course of the past 300 years sealing, whaling, fishing, the China trade, and of course, the Battle of Stonington. It's a wonderful place to visit, and I encourage you to do so. Well, thank you very much, Beth, for giving us a wonderful tour through Stonington. We could spend hours more. So when you give this tour, they're available on Fridays at 11 and Sundays at 2 p.m. They'd last about 75 minutes. We walked for about a mile, so we, in, we covered nearly the entire length of the borough. 
which is three-tenths of a mile long. We stop in shady spots several times along the way to discuss the history. Hey, thank you very much. We've enjoyed our day in Stonington. To read more stories about Stonington from past issues of Connecticut Explored, visit ctexplore.org listen. We've listed these stories with the description of this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for joining us. I'll take a root beer float with vanilla ice cream. Okay. Anything? Yeah, no, no, the same. Uh, yeah, that'll be 8.40. Hi, I'm Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher for Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Today I'm bringing you Shack Attack, Summer Eats in Connecticut. It's summertime and the living is easy. Proprietors of all kinds of seasonal roadside eateries take down the winter shutters and put up the awnings, get out the gaudy signs, restock the kitchen, hire the summer help, and prepare to feed the motoring public. From clam shacks to hot dog stands to hamburger joints and ice cream takeout windows, Connecticut's food on the go, or road food, beckons along our two-lane highways. I'm an architectural historian, and I've never seen a two-lane highway that I didn't want to drive down. Here's two teenage customers Elizabeth Norman and I met recently at the Sea Swirl on Route 1 in Mystic, Connecticut. We're here at the Sea Swirl in Route 1 in Mystic, which is a seasonal food shack. Let's talk to a couple customers and see what they like to eat here. Um, I like to eat the fried scallops. And I like to eat the fries with the cheese. (laughs) You guys been coming here a long time? Um, No, this is actually my first time, but she's been here before. I've been here since I was little. The Sea Swirl is a roadside architecture two-for-one. Located on Shoreline Route 1 within eyeshot of Long Island Sound, the popular clam shack operates in a nearly pristine former Carvel ice cream shop. Founded by Greek immigrant Tom Carvel in 1929, the Carvel Ice Cream Company patented the all-glass front, almost wedge-shaped building design in 1947. An architecturally similar design was later made famous by the McDonald's hamburger chain. The Sea Swirl was opened by the Blanning family in 1985 and has been visited by Food Network star Rachel Ray. Known regionally as home to outstanding whole belly clams sourced from nearby Stonington, the restaurant also offers soft-serve ice cream delights, including sundaes, ice cream floats, and ice cream sodas. So we're here, we're here at the Sea Swirl, and let's talk to a three-year employee about the food. Um, the food here is good. We have the whole belly clams are really popular, and um, the clam fritters, and my favorite is the fish tacos. And I noticed you have soft-serve ice cream and hard ice cream. Which is more popular? Um, the soft serve, we have a lot more flavors, but the hard ice cream is more popular with, like, the older people, so. <laughs> and how do you get your, all your clams? Um, yeah, we get them from the Stonington Borough, and then they come in and we fry them here. Wow. Nationally renowned food critics Jane and Michael Stern have made a joint career of writing about non-franchised restaurants that serve American regional specialties prepared by short-order cooks. They call them America's Culinary Folk Artists. In their first book, Road Food, first published in 1977 and now in its ninth edition, it documents hundreds of meals they ate at local restaurants, 
and their website, roadfood.com, features reviews of more than 130 Connecticut roadside restaurants, a must-read for Connecticut roadside foodies. But how did all this food-on-the-go get started? In his book, Main Street to Miracle Mile, historian Chester Liebs describes how, in the 1920s, as more families were able to purchase automobiles, Americans of almost all classes took to the road for pleasure, taking, as my family would, a drive in the country or to the seashore. While many packed picnic lunches, others depended on roadside restaurants for sustenance along the way. From 1921 to 1927, the number of restaurants of all kinds grew a whopping 40% as Americans embraced the pleasures of eating out. Food stands, once the province of the amusement park or the county fair, began popping up at convenient and high-traffic stopping points along the road. The typical food shack is a simple utilitarian building located on marginal land close to the road. It has large hand-painted signs, a walk-up window for ordering, a limited menu posted with prices, and nearby picnic tables or otherwise rustic seating. This business was great for startup entrepreneurs, folks with limited capital but willingness to work hard during the short summer season. Blackie's Hot Dog Stand at 2200 Waterbury Road in Cheshire, for example, got started in 1925 as a gas station owned by a married couple. By 1928, the couple had built the enterprise into a successful restaurant serving hot dogs. Today, Blackie's eye-catching vintage red neon sign announces the home of the state's most architecturally outstanding hot dog stand. The current building, built in 1945, is composed of two red and white octagonal towers connected by a counter and a row of shiny chrome counter stools. When you go, be sure to look at the historic photographs hung throughout the dining rooms. And, as with most food shacks, Blackie's has their own homemade secret recipe relish. Now, although I'm charmed by the cobbled-together look of roadside food shacks, they have had their detractors. In 1928, Mrs. John D. Rockefeller and the American Civic Association sponsored a competition to, quote, clean up the hodgepodge of unsightly hot dog stands and the accompanying riffraff of roadside markets, unquote. Whew. Connecticut once had food shacks devoted to the state's fish, the Connecticut River Shad, serving this springtime delicacy for only six weeks when the shad travel up the Connecticut River to spawn. Shad Shack, such as Spencer's Haddam Shad Shack on Route 154, was opened from 1930 to the 1960s and served breakfast, lunch, and dinner to take in as much business as possible in the short season. They offered scrambled eggs with shad roe, traditional baked shad, and broiled shad. Now shad is pretty much only featured in community shad bakes in towns including Essex, Old Saybrook, and Windsor. But many food shacks still thrive, including the Pilot House, and Higgies, both on 154, Route 154 in Haddam, in Higginum, the old road to the seashore, with burgers, hot dogs, fries, and ice cream. The Pilot House has its own homemade sweet and hot relishes, and Higgies, founded in 1947, is known for its secret recipe chili meat sauce that tops the hot dogs. Or Harry's Place at 104 Broadway in Colchester, renowned for its fresh hamburgers and divine onion rings. Harry's is even listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Check our website at ctexplored.org for links to stories featuring the food shacks I've mentioned 
and a slideshow of photographs by Connecticut artist Robert Gregson. And coming this fall, 2016, visit a special exhibition about road trips at the New Haven Museum that will feature photographs by nationally known architectural historian Richard Longstreth of Roadside Architecture, plus the stories and mementos of road trips taken by New Haveners. For more information about the exhibition and programs, visit newhavenmuseum.org. Now get out there and start your own list of roadside favorites. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Charlie Clark, Sibby Lynch, Noah Warren, the James Merrill House, and the Stonington Village Improvement Association, and Beth Moore and the Stonington Historical Society. In the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, we'll find out about the extraordinary life of a man who managed to pack careers as a minister, photographer, entrepreneur, historical expert, furniture maker, and marketing genius all in one lifetime. That's Wallace Nutting, subject of a new exhibit opening at the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield. In the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.